Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks that move. I'm Corey Johnson. On October 5th, we've got episode 110. Well, just ahead, how Unity Software is going from 3D gaming to a multiverse for Walgreens? Plus, boating retailer Marine Max gets a bigger boat, a lot of them. And how growth has returned to ATM maker Diebold Nixdorf. We'll drill down to the company with Zio Capital's Marcus Moore. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on your smart speaker. All you got to do is look at that smart speaker. Hell, look away. Look completely away and just yell loudly, play The Drill Down podcast. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We explain the business stories behind stocks in a move, and we have the three most important developments in the world of business today with executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac? Corey, the U.S. trade deficit widened to a record in August as imports rebounded. Imports rose 1.4%, reflecting higher shipments into the U.S. of consumer goods and industrial supplies. Though shipments into and out of the U.S. grew overall in August, issues with global supply chains have continued, as we know. A severe shortage of semiconductors forced automakers to reduce their production. Exports of vehicles and parts fell 8%. Well, imports also shrank 5.2%. And also, let's get to energy prices. Energy prices continue to surge. Today, the West Texas Intermediate, that's the U.S. oil benchmark, rising another 1.7% to seven, over 78, almost $79 a barrel after reaching its highest level since 2014 yesterday. And natural gas prices are also soaring on concerns about a shortfall in stockpiles heading into winter. Worth noting that the oil spill... We talked about yesterday, the Amplify Energy uh, pipeline that's leaking have, probably has nothing to do with that. It really didn't produce that much oil that it would have an effect on oil prices. And finally, let's get to Apple. Uh, banks are reportedly pushing Visa to adjust the way it processes some Apple Pay transactions. Now, this is according to the Wall Street Journal. The paper says, under a potential plan by Visa, the fees that card issuers pay to Apple when their cardholders use Apple Pay wouldn't apply on automatic recurring payments, such like uh, gym memberships or streaming services. Now, Visa may implement this change next year, but the journal says it may not because Apple executives have told Visa reportedly that they oppose the change. Yeah, they want to keep getting a cut. You know, the, <laughs> I, would, the, I would think so. Issue, well, the big issue there, that, you know, the reason Apple Pay works for Visa is it is a better kind of fraud detection, right? The facial yeah. ID... The biometric proof that the user is who the user claims to be is something that Visa doesn't have otherwise. And uh, Apple, you know, thinks that maybe Visa ought to be paying for that uh, that benefit. Lower fraud is more more profit for Visa. Apple wants to share that. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Unity Software. Unity Software trades under U. Shares rose almost 7% today and they've gained 52% in a year. What's going on with Unity Software? Yeah, so uh, vastly outperforming the S&P 500. Now, full disclosure, I've spent some time with some executives at Unity uh, in media training, teaching them how to be on camera. So 
figure that I'm totally biased. I think it's a very interesting business uh, regardless. Um, now, it is a gaming business, or at least it started that way. Uh, creating an engine and software tools to sort of manipulate that engine. It probably runs half of all the world's video games now. Uh, but there's much more to this business now than games in 3D. They're going into a world where all kinds of companies are starting to design 3D experiences online and offline. Companies like not just gaming companies, right? This might surprise you. Lowe's, Walgreen, Nature Conservancy. These are all customers of this 3D gaming engine uh, where the company now kind of describes it as the multiverse. Now, today they announced that Unity Metacast is a new sports platform doing interactive content, uh, in, in particular partnering with UFC. I know you're a huge fan, Isaac, of the mixed martial arts. Uh, I am, actually. Yeah, well, and why wouldn't you be? So uh, um, it, the, these got a partnering with UFC uh, to create some new stuff. They're not saying what it's going to be yet, but beyond games. And the guy they're hired to run it is really an interesting hire here. Peter Moore, who had been the number two guy at, at Electronic Arts, left there to be president of the and CEO of the Liverpool Football Club. Had terrific success with Liverpool. He's coming back to the States and back to the gaming business. Actually, I assume he's coming back to the States. He's been in England. He and I are friendly. I sent him a Facebook message this morning. Uh, but th I think it's a huge deal to bring in someone of that caliber to this company. And this is a guy that could have run Electronic Arts or something big. He's a catch for Unity. Um, and it shows how this business goes beyond just video games into actual sports and who knows what else. Um, and, you know, it was interesting in the last conference call to hear John Riccatello, the CEO of Unity, talk about how their businesses were more than just games and, and more than just uh, selling software, but selling software as a service and also uh, selling uh, their own professional services, programmers who could kind of teach other companies how to use that software uh, and get up and running in the multiverse. Today, we generate, you know, outside gaming, um, primarily a SaaS business and professional services business. You're right, we sell seat licenses and we sell runtime applications like Forma and Reflect to our customers. Um, these companies also typically need um, help getting up and running with their new applications. Um, and so with companies like Walgreens and Lowe's and the Nature Conservancy and many, many others, we offer professional services. You, in prior question, we talked about how they're hiring Unity developers, a lot of these companies, they are, um, but they often need professional services from Unity to augment a more, you know, a smaller scale team than they have internally to build what it is they want. Hence, they engage with us on, on professional services. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that going forward from this company where they're looking at lots of different kinds of customers who are trying to create 3D experiences. You know, imagine uh, an, an Ikea where you go into a room in your house, you pick the Ikea couch that you want, and you can turn your phone around the room to see what that couch in different colors would look like in the actual room. That's the kind of 3D experience that um, increasingly they're going to have the ability to provide. Sign me up for that. I think it sounds fascinating. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Braemar Hotels and Resorts. BHR shares fell today, but they've gained 90% in a year. What's going on with Braemar? So it was a company I never really looked at uh, prior to uh, today, but an interesting hotel company. I thought it'd be interesting to kind of look at, you know, what's going on with a, with a post-COVID world as in regards to uh, the hotel business. You know, probably no business was hurt worse. Uh, Braemar has a, a, about a billion for enterprise value with about 400 million of that in stock. 
uh, the Ruston debt, of course. It is a hotel REIT. Um, and so uh, this, of all the REITs, of all the hotel REITs, these guys have just the fanciest properties, the highest average revenue per room. They've got Ritz-Carlton's. They've got resorts in St. Thomas, in Napa Valley, in Sarasota, Torrey Pines Golf Course in San Diego. Um, they came out with an update today with uh, saying that they were 57% full for, uh, occupancy in September. Their average daily rate, Isaac, $333. Um, and their their revenue, uh, the RevPAR, their revenue per available room, 188 bucks. Now, that reflects an increase of a lot over last year, um, but lower than 2019. So it's 167% over last year, but 21% below 2019's September. They're still a month away from reporting results. But uh, this shows, um, uh, you know, that that increase on a year-over-year -year basis really isn't as important. It sounds good, but it just isn't. They had come out only a few weeks ago saying that they were just doing fantastically well, that they were doing better than 2019 because they had more properties open. Things have slowed down for them. They said in the press release today, and they didn't do a news conference or, or a conference call with investors, but they said that they had fallen, quote, somewhat short of initial expectations due to market concerns about shocker, COVID-19 Delta variant. But the Napa properties, do you know these Napa properties, Isaac, up in uh, Yountville? No. They're nice. I've stayed at them, and they're just nice. But Bardesso Resort and Spa, Hotel Yountville, were doing $1,400 and $1,000 average revenues uh, per room. Just, just swanky places that are going great for them, even as some of their other properties maybe are slowing down a little bit. So I thought it was interesting to hear the CEO, Richard Stockton, talk about an investor conference uh, on, uh, I think it was August 17th, middle of August, talking about, you know, how the results were doing and where people are actually willing to spend some money, uh, even in bigger numbers, at least at that point it looked like it, in bigger numbers than they had even in 2019. You know, our high-end leisure business and uh, leisure resorts, luxury resorts, are doing very well. Uh, we've seen uh, rates above what we were able to get uh, pre-pandemic. I think a lot of that's driven by just the desirability of our assets and the fact that we're in great, we've got great assets in great locations. And this is where people want to go. I want to go. Same. Um, I did walk by some of those places in Yountville last weekend. It, it was, it's a lovely spot. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Marine Max. I don't know if you know, this is one of my favorite companies. I've talked to you about Marine Max before. HZO is what it trades under. HZO shares were relatively flat today, but they've gained 90% in a year. So what's new with Marine Max? Well, we talked about it back in July uh, briefly. Um, and one of the reasons I love this company is I was once short the stock. And I was short the stock because the CEO said they were having a lousy quarter. And I was at an investment conference, Raymond James investment conference. And there were, you know, easily 100 other uh, hedge fund analysts and portfolio managers in the room who heard the CEO saying they were doing a, having a lousy quarter, but the analyst at Raymond James kept saying, no, it's going to be a really good quarter. I don't know why he's saying that. And I walked out of the room saying, he just told you they're not doing well. So I shorted the stock and it came out with lousy earnings and the stock went down. And um, and I always I always thought it was so great of the, the then CEO uh, to, to be so honest. Uh, his son now runs the company as CEO and the chief financial officer, Michael McLam, also handled a lot of the duties on their quarterly conference calls. But today they announced, uh, well, they've been talking about an inability to get, get enough stuff, stuff to sell. The boats during the pandemic and after the pandemic have been selling 
like crazy. They just can't get enough inventory. Well, how do you get more inventory? You buy a boat maker. So they bought Intrepid Power Boats based in Largo, Florida. Uh, they announced an acquisition today. They make custom power boats, um, and the deal's going to close by the end of the year. They think it's going to be accretive right off the bat. This company did $60 million in revenue and was profitable, and they expect that profitability to continue and will be accretive to this company in the acquisition in the first 12 months of the deal um, once it's closed. But I thought it was interesting to hear uh, from the company in their last conference call about what inventory meant. And indeed, if they were having cancellations at all from orders that uh, customers were putting out there for new boats, here's CFO Michael McLam. We really haven't seen any any uh, any uptick in cancellations at all. People are locked in. I think there's a dynamic out there that in the past, you know, people, boaters have always upgraded boats, right? They want a larger boat one day. And I think in the past, people would say, hey, yeah, next season, let's go looking for boats, right? Now people are looking at it and saying, we better get our boat on order now if we want it for next season. So there's that's creating some patience in and of itself. I think people are being more proactive about their future purchase. And, uh, you know, we're figuring out a way to keep them on the hook. One way to keep them on the hook is get more boats. That's what Marine Max is doing. All right. Well, of the many businesses that suffered during COVID, would you believe the sale of ATMs? Oh, you know, automatic teller machines was totally in the tank, but that business is coming back. Got a really interesting analysis uh, from Zio's Marcus Moore, one of our favorites, uh, on Diebold Nixdorf and what's happening with the business of ATMs. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. As promised, we've got Zio's Marcus Moore. Always glad to have Marcus Moore around. Um, uh, and Marcus, uh, you brought a really interesting company to our attention, as you always do. Uh, Diebold yeah. Nixdorf. We try to keep it interesting. It sounds like a cartoon <laughs> character. It sounds like it ought to be in Phineas and Verb. Well, yeah, it's an interesting history. I mean, they go back over 100 years. The Diebold business actually started with safes and security and all of that, and then have kind of ventured into um, ATM machines. And they purchased the Wincorn Nixdorf Company of Germany in, uh, I think, like 2007. Is that right? Uh, no, sorry, 2015. Is sorry, Diebold 2015. Sorry. Um, Wait, is Diebold well, not Diebold? it's Diebold, it's but Diebold. You, know, okay. I, you know, you never like to correct a host. Now I know. You don't have and to. It, and it's, it's a, no, it's, it's all good. It's uh, So it's a, it's a $3 billion company with an $800 million market yes. cap, which is to say it's got it a lot does. of debt, which is your, yeah, it your is. specialty. Uh, what, what is the so business So basically principle? they are a, they have, I mean, they view themselves as a leader in what they call connected commerce. And, you know, that's a fancy way to say that they facilitate, um, you know, banking and retail transactions, um, mostly through, First off, their ATMs, which is the biggest part of their business, um, and then also through uh, like self checkout or self checkoff kiosk in retail. And so globally, they have the number one oh, market share in all ATMs um, with about a one million installed units and about a thirty percent market share. And then they're number one in retail kiosk and like self checkout. You know, like the 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 online or the in store ordering you might see at like a fast food restaurant now. They're number one in Europe um, with a 19% market share globally, but their, their market share in Europe is somewhere like 30, 
Um, and so, uh, you know, the focus again. So like the like the Safeway now yes. where you and I live, yes. listeners note that Marcus and I live near each other. Uh, and, the, and the only way to get out of there in any reasonable amount of time is yes. that self-checkout. And so, the, and the, you know, the focus, I think sometimes is placed too much on ATMs, given the fact that in the U.S. and most developed economies, you're seeing significant reductions in bank branches, significant reduction in cash transactions. But you have to think about that, you know, throughout the rest of um, developing Europe and developing countries, they're still kind of ramping up those kind of services. And so there's still a need for that business. And even in the U.S. and European markets, which are more mature, uh, Diebold is actually taking market share because of some of their new technology. Um, they have a system called the DN series, which is their kind of new network around ATMs and it's faster. They actually use recycled material. It's lighter to ship. So it's a, it costs less to the uh, user, but then also it's connected. And so with how it works is they have a software that connects the entire system. And that's that network connection allows them to be much more proactive in kind of managing any potential outages and maintenance. And so instead of, you know, just having to go every six months because that's just the routine schedule that we we do maintenance on these machines. They actually can tell in real time if there's a, a potential outage that may be sooner than the six month window in which they would normally, um, you know, do some form of routine maintenance or it may be longer. And so they don't have to make that stop. And so what they're finding is that um, cost in terms of maintenance costs, in terms of the, the, the ongoing maintenance are down about 50 percent. Um, relative to wow. uh, the previous series of ATMs. And so given that functionality and reduced downtime, uh, they're seeing a lot of you know significant wins even in a mature space like the U.S. banking market as it relates to ATMs. Now, how does how does the business work when they sell the they sell the ATM, but they promise yeah. to service it for yes. a certain period of time, and so they recognize the revenues from the sale over a very long period of time because the services component hasn't yet. Well, been so delivered. the way they do it is they so it's a twofold, and then actually, again, as we talked about in, 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 in the point I was making earlier about how I think people misunderstand the business. Sixty, almost two thirds of their revenues comes from the software and services side. Just the third is from the hard, the actual ATM hardware, and so interesting. Kind of like Otis yeah. Elevators, right? Where that where where that business is also really about maintenance, not really about uh, selling yes. the elevator. And so. so for these guys, it's really a soft. The, you know, the software that maintains these services has data that helps them understand, like the customers better understand transaction patterns, information about their about their customers. And so you know that software, those software is is a very valuable part of the business. And so as they continue to develop and improve their technology around that, that those software and services, like I said, and then produce really strong products in the marketplace, it helps them drive kind of their revenue and their market share. It, it's an interesting business in the, too, that they talk a lot, at least in their financial filings, about software yeah. itself. Now software is a really real barrier to entry. How, how deeply embedded into the banking operation is oh, that software? Very much so. And so what a lot of these, uh, so you think about it as just managing the the ATM, but in a lot of cases, it's managing a lot of other back office functions. And so you're managing not just, you're managing the ATM network, but also to some extent, you're getting data and managing data around those transactions, who those transactions are for. So you're managing customer, you're, you're managing, you know, transaction data, customer data, um, operational data in terms of how they're operating 
um, in some of the, you know, from a retail perspective and from a banking perspective. And so this software is is very important. And once it's in, you know, there is, there are switching costs and barriers to entry into the marketplace. What is the relationship, um, you know, to the bank branches? I may have used the anecdote of the show before, but I was talking to a banking exec about two years ago, CEO of a, of a big regional bank. And he said that they had done a study that found that their customers, millennial customers, would of the things that they like to do, uh, going into a bank branch was below getting a root canal. And that wasn't really yeah. positive for the yeah. banking executives who thought that their branches were the most important part of their business and who'd come up in an industry where building out better branches meant was sort of your, your, your uh, success uh, as yeah. a banking executive. And you see, yes. you see banks like trying to put in coffee yeah. shops and stupid stuff like that, as if that's going to make someone want to go to the, you know, bad coffee with bad banking. Perfect. <laughs> so what is the relationship to ATM sales to bank branches? And so, uh, as you, so what you're seeing right now is a lot of the large banks are, are, are rationalizing their footprint. And actually, Debo is actually helping them kind of understand how to best do that through the through the data that they have through their software and then just kind of monitoring overall market trends. And so what you're seeing is that. You still there's still a large number of people who need to transact in cash or make, you know, direct deposit or make physical deposits at the bank or at least some form of depositing cash. And so what they're trying, what they're helping or working with the banks to do is kind of make sure that the ATM networks have that type of functionality. So they now have, you know, you're seeing a, a rise in like the cash recycling machines in branches and then at um, like in branches from a, a, the bank employee using and then also as a customer, because instead of going to the branch, you can go to you can go to a specified ATM, actually deposit the cash into that ATM. That ATM will, will track and monitor and keep track of all of the cash that's there and also have a, a, a customer record. So even though, you know, all of the, the cash in the ATM is tied to a bunch of different transactions, but that data is kept. And so the, the, the bank can kind of access those transactions, has, has that information available to them. And so that's how they can lower cost in terms of from a, from a uh, real estate standpoint, in terms of not having the large space, from having fewer people that need to c- help conduct those transactions. And so as you're seeing that shift, and increased yes, data, and increased data. And so as you're seeing that shift away from, you know, bank branching and, and in-person banking is the better way to say it. Um, as you're seeing that shift, you know, Diebold's ATM machines and technology and software are all helping facilitate that change. And again, as you see, again, the software is so much of an important part of that and is a much larger piece of the pie for them anyway. Now, you saw uh, in 2020, it looked like it was a really lousy year yeah. for this company. You saw <clears throat> big declines in revenues. Um, across the board, but their biggest decline in revenues was, so you said, you know, products and services, so that's ATMs and services is, is servicing those ATMs and, and, uh, and uh, you know, and probably some services around the software installation too. But their products business in the U.S. fell 24% year over year. Presumably a lot of that was about COVID, yes? yes? Um, again, a lot of, part of that was a, was a byproduct of, um, again, you're seeing in that point in time, from an order standpoint, you actually have to get into the branch to buy those machines or anything like that. And so that's where you would see the decline. And, so, and a lot of that really was just point in time. Um, it wasn't really a we didn't want the product. It was more of just we're not in a position to physically take the product because our branch may not have been open. 
Um, you saw that in the U.S. and you also saw that even more significantly in Europe um, that you weren't able to actually kind of bring those products in. But now that, you know, those restrictions have been lifted, you've been seeing pretty strong order trends um, from Diebold in their um, products category. I think orders in their most right. recent quarter were up 40 percent and the backlog in Q2 was up 20 percent year over year. And so you're seeing more uh, adoption of their product. And a lot of it has to do with the success of that DN series that I talked about earlier. And there's currency issues too. Yeah. That I, I said it was a 24% decline in product, but it was a, but on constant currency, it was only, it was yeah. 20%. So, you know, a little bit better. Um, uh, it's a fascinating industry too. Uh, you, one wonders, you know, the number of bank branches, uh, uh, there's a, well, there's a, well, Bank of America right near me and a Wells Fargo right near me. Wells Fargo was closed for almost yeah. a year. The B of A has yet to have anybody inside the ATMs humming, yeah. but, the, but I wonder what that means for the future of the, of that bank. And, and bank branches uh, writ large. I, mean, I think as they look at it, they kind of view their saying they view it. In, uh, so they look at the mature market and the developing market. So from a mature market in the U.S., their market share gains are really coming from winning as, as these as the, as the J.P. Morgans and the Wells Fargo's of the world say, you know what? There's newer in tech. There's newer ATM technology out there that we want to have access to data, software, et cetera. Um, and they're winning a significant amount of that business. And so they're gaining share. And that's what they're doing in kind of like the developed markets. But remember, you still have places like China and, you know, Eastern Europe, where these markets are still growing and these economies are still growing. And so they're, you know, I mean, I hate to use I hate to phrase it this way. But if you think about their banking system, their banking system is probably 20 30 years behind ours, where your people are still going into bank branches. There's still significant amount of cash transactions. And so you need the, the ATM service. Um, you need, you know, and then in Europe, they're much more advanced in terms of like uh, the in-store kiosk and self-checkout. That's a much further, that's much further along in Europe. And that's where they have their number one market share and they're continuing to grow there as well. And so from, from a banking perspective, they see their, you know, emerging markets and developed markets are really just for market share gain. And then from a, a retail standpoint, it's a lot of growth and opportunities in Europe and throughout, even into the U.S. And I think they're they have a very minimal share in the U.S. And one of their strategies is to actually drive growth in the U.S. through their European retailers who come into the U.S. and then expose the U.S. consumer to those technologies, hoping that, again, that's another opportunity for market share gains. Uh, it, it's an interesting business indeed. Uh, we'll keep an eye on this one. Uh, Marcus Moore from Zio. Really oh, no, appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having Thank me. you. All right, well, coming up next on the drill, and we're going to have the drill and bite. We're going to talk about the growth that this company is now showing. Uh, the year-over-year -year growth rate uh, has really improved from a horrible growth rate uh, just a year ago with the second quarter, 2020. We'll give you both those numbers. Last year's year-over-year -year growth rate, which is awful. And this year's growth rate looks, looks a little bit better. Those percentages interesting. We'll have those when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we hope you enjoy the drill down podcast wherever you are every day. One of the ways to make that easier is listen on your smart speaker by asking your smart speaker to play the Drill Down podcast. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. 
All right, we're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Well, as I mentioned, uh, the year-over-year numbers in the Q2 2020, Isaac, for this company were really bad. This quarter, most recent Q2, was pretty good, 6% year-over-year growth. But the uh, growth rate from a year ago in 2020, the second quarter, was negative. And here's that number, that Drill Down Bite, that one number that means a whole lot, 23%. Negative 23% year-over-year. That's ouch. just an ouch. Yeah, if I shrunk by 23%, that'd put me about four foot something. Yeah. That's yeah. not good. That's not good. Luckily, that's not happening yet. All right, you've been listening to Drill on Podcast. We're grateful for your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Logging in at a good six foot five right now, at least on, a, on a early in the week. We'll see how the rest of the week goes. Isaac Webster is with us, as well as our executive producer, Ben Wilson, is our editor extraordinaire of The Drill Down. It's a production of the Business Podcast Network.